Welcome to the Appalachian Baptist Network. We seek to equip, encourage, and engage pastors and church leaders in the Appalachian region. We focus on having conversations on church revitalization in the mountains and beyond. Your hosts are Matthew Jacobs, Brent Snyder, Jacob Gwynn, and Travis Tyler. Jesus gave us the mandate, go and make disciples. This episode today is dedicated to that mandate that he gave us. And joining me today is Jacob Gwynn and then our special guest, Dr. Chris Yumei, who focused on disciple-making at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We were there at the same time. I was working on revitalization. You were working on there. And it's kind of funny. We sort of stayed in our tribes while we were in school there, didn't we? We, we did. We didn't really cross paths as much there. Only when we came, you came to pastor here in Elizabeth and did we become better friends. That's right. So. Yep. All right, so let's let's get into this a little bit here. So you're more read and more of an expert on this topic than I am. Uh, let's talk about the history of discipleship, how Southern Baptists have tried to do discipleship, and then we'll move forward to how we're doing it now or what we need to be doing it now. So how did Southern Baptists try to handle this issue of discipleship or disciple-making? Is there a distinction? If so, what is that distinction? I think there maybe is a distinction, an unhealthy distinction. I don't think it maybe should be phrased this way, but a lot of people think of discipleship as something that happens with those who are already believers in terms of their edification or their their spiritual growth. You know, they have things like training union, discipleship training at church, classes attended by people who already know Jesus. And so discipleship gets separated from evangelism or disciple-making, but I think I think that's an unhealthy distinction. I think rightly understood disciple-making includes both bringing people to Jesus and helping them follow Jesus. So Two sides of the same coin? Yeah. Yeah, and so historically, I think a lot of the ways that Southern Baptists have done that, and other people could speak better on this than I, but Sunday school has been a huge part of that, going all the way back to Flake's formula and, and you know how Sunday school is meant to, to be the weekly program, if you will, for discipleship, things I've already mentioned, training union. And for so those who may not know, what is training union for people that may be listening and they don't have, they've never seen it? They're, well, I've never experienced it. I mean, I don't, I don't, are there, are there churches that still do it? Not to my knowledge. No. Yeah. I, I don't think anyone actually does, quote, training union, but I think they do some kind of modified, modern version of it Okay. on a Sunday night. So I, there are a series of, of classes that you would go through. Uh, you could, you know, pass the class by doing a certain amount of reading and homework assignments, and they had classes on, you know, theological issues or practical issues, and you know, so it was a, a, a steady course that you would always stay in one class or another. That's my understanding. But again, <laughs> most churches stopped doing it well before I was even around for that. So, do you have any discipleship training books? Has anybody given you any? Well, I found an old box up in our <coughs> church library. So yeah. I've got a few that I saved when I found them in the, in the box. Have you got any? Uh, I've seen them, yeah. I've yeah. seen a whole host of them before, yeah. I saved some just because it's a a remnant of a decade uh, gone by from yeah. years ago. Now, when I was at First Baptist, my mentoring pastor was still, he wasn't, I think he was actually still calling it Training Union, but he wasn't using those books because they had ceased making Training Union books. But he would still... Before Sunday night, he had a group of mostly senior adult men that he took in a back room and was doing formal discipleship with. So, And I just want to say that 
those I think were were used by the Lord in a lot of good ways. Like I, I don't want to say that there was anything wrong with that or that we've moved on to better things. I mean, it wasn't perfect. Nothing is perfect, but I think the people who who directed those programs and who participated really grew through that, and the Lord used that in a lot of good ways. So we don't want to overreact to those things. But it became a little too, I guess, programmatic. So then let's talk about uh, other models that may have been used. I know before we started here, we, we discussed John Wesley a little bit. John Wesley in the past had a model where he was seeking to kind of be like Jesus with open and closed groups. Um, if you're unfamiliar with those terms, an uh, open group is just what it sounds like. It's open to anybody to come in, and a closed group is exactly what it sounds like. It's got a certain group of people, and once that is there, then there's no more admitted in. What uh, One thing that he did and that Moody and many in that time period did was the after meeting. And I'm sure we talked about that. You've read about that. What was the after meeting in services? Well, I don't remember specifically. Jacob might have a better definition than I do. But I, I do remember that everything, like that's where Methodism came from, was his method for disciple making. And so, yes, you had the, the open groups, the large you know, open air preaching or whatever it may be. But then you had classes and you had penitent groups where people were getting together to hold each other accountable and deal with specific sin issues in their lives. So it was it was a whole method meant to, to move people along a continuum of growing closer to Jesus and being more obedient to Jesus. Now, where exactly the after meeting fit into that? I don't yeah, know. so that, that, that was the after meeting. Okay. So after they would have revival or there was these tent meetings and there were people coming to know the Lord. When when the evangelist or whoever it was went to another town, it didn't just end there and you think, what's next? No, they had gotcha. they had people and they went through, you know, Wesley's method of helping them grow to to know the Lord deeper and to follow him more faithfully. Yeah. And and others have done similar things. I mean you think about even someone like Billy Graham, he he and his organization tried to have a system of follow up with any who made decisions at the Crusades through local churches. It didn't always happen perfectly. It never does. But they knew there was importance in not just saying, okay, you know Jesus, now you're good, but but getting them connected to a church where they could really be trained from that point. All right. The, ex, the next thing that I would uh, draw our attention towards would be uh, what is the model that we're seeking to have? What are we trying to accomplish here. Uh, we know that we have seen here, we've discussed after meetings, we have discussed the Sunday School Training Union, those different programmatic approaches. What are we What are we trying to get after here? Well, as important as all those historical models are, I think it's most important to consider the biblical model, right? And that starts with Jesus. As you said, he gave us the mandate to make disciples the Great Commission. And so if we want to understand what disciple making is, we've got to start with him. And when he called his first disciples, Matthew chapter 4, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So right there, even within that call, we see that there is an outward focus. There is evangelism in mind. It's not just a matter of you growing in your knowledge or in your own spiritual maturity. There's to be you know, a replication, so to speak, where you reach others and, and help them to do the same thing. So I think, uh, I think that's where we need to start. But if Jesus is the one who gives us the definition for discipleship or disciple-making, I think he's also the one that gives us the method. So if you read through the Gospels and you see how he interacted with people, you know that he had the large crowd that followed him and to hear him preach and teach and to 
you know, receive the benefit of the miracles and things like that. You also had the smaller group of around 70 disciples, and then you had the 12 and even the inner three. So I think that's a model that, that just about any pastor or ministry leader could follow. If you think about uh, the, the disciple making that you do within your own church, you've got the crowd, you've got the congregation, and when you preach to them week to week, that is disciple making. I mean, that is a huge element of their spiritual formation, or at least it should be. But if that's all that you do in terms of disciple making, then you're really missing out on most of what Jesus modeled for us. If not the bulk percentage right. of his ministry. Yeah, so so I think we need to, to just remember that, and I don't remember who said this initially, but but I've heard it said before that you can't really you can't really focus on the message of Jesus yet separate it from the method of Jesus. And yet that's what I think a lot of people have tried to do. And so we, we love to picture ourselves in a situation like Billy Graham preaching to thousands upon thousands. But really the, the bigger investment that we're going to be able to make is by meeting with, with a small group or even one-on-one with somebody and really pouring into them to see them grow in Christ. Well, let's, let's get into a few hows to do this then, since we're going to point to this as the model. There have been quite a few good books that I think any anybody at this table would recommend you read. Uh, of course, the classic by Leroy Himes, The Lost Art of Making Disciples. Really, this is the model he points to, right? I think he even gets into how many hours Jesus poured into the disciples. Do you remember how many hours that was? It was a significant amount. I, I can't remember if it's hours or if he does a percentage. I think it's he goes to kind of a gospel narrative and does like a percentage of how many hours he does with three and the 12 and the 70 and the, the crowds. Because mm-hmm. he has a breakdown of congregation, crowd, so forth, uh, and core. Yeah, I don't remember the a precise number or percentage, but you know, even if you just read, if you get a harmony of the Gospels and just read, read through the story, it's easy to see that the bulk of his time was, was invested in a few select men. Yeah. And so, again, I think that needs to be the pattern for us, too. Another book that highlights that is Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. Classic. Very, uh, very important and helpful book in that regard. And, and I think that's something that you'll see with a lot of the books. And, and I think we all realize that it's kind of become the end thing to write books on disciple making, yeah. uh, and to emphasize this. And that's not a bad thing, but the best books are all going to point back to those same basic principles yeah. because the Bible is the book on yeah. disciple making. And so all that they're really able to do is help point us back to what Jesus did and how important that was. So, um, yeah, I think that's how I would gauge the the helpfulness of of a book on disciple-making. So we really need to think about, as a church, whether you're a church plant or you're replanting or whatever you're doing, our core thing that we're trying to make is discipleships and you, or excuse me, disciples. And you said something really neat. I don't remember what conference it was in. Somebody put up different logos. Will you, yeah. uh, you share that with us? Yeah, this is a story that I think Robbie Gallaty tells in one of his books, maybe Rediscovering Discipleship. But he says that, uh, you know, someone, I wish I could remember who was at a conference speaking and they put up the, the Nike swoosh symbol and said, what is, what does this company make? And, Everybody said, tennis shoes. They put up a Starbucks symbol. What do, what do they make? They make coffee. And you put up a picture of the church and said, what do they make? And everybody was silent. There's this basic lack of recognition that we are to be in the business of making disciples. 
And that has really practical implications. If that does become the main focus of what we're doing, then it becomes easy to assess the health or usefulness of all your ministries. If you're doing something that doesn't in some way foster disciple making, why are you doing it? That's, that's a distraction of time and energy and resources from what the main task is supposed to be. It's not that you just cut out everything, but you know, one-on-one meetings, but, but if it doesn't somehow fit within that process that you're trying to lead people through to be closer to Jesus and more like Jesus, then is it really the best investment of your time and resources there? So you think about, you know, with a, with a church plan, for instance, it's, I'm not planning a church, but I know church planners and I know how difficult it can be to try to think through what do we want our week to week schedule to look like? What are the things we want to do throughout the community? That that's one of those really practical considerations. How will this help us make disciples? And then of course, for a lot of our listeners that are in revitalization or replanting, we've got to ask the same question, but you know, I heard the illustration last week. I was at the NAM conference and it was about replanting. And they said, you know, in revitalization, it's one it's one of the ones that most churches that need it are open to where you go in and make slower changes over time. But he said it's kind of like taking an airplane apart and putting it together while you're trying to take off on the runway. (laughs) So, you know, like that's kind of what revitalization feels like. And so let's talk to those pastors that are and this is probably the bulk of our listeners and, and lay leaders that are in like uh, revitalization settings, uh, which is the bulk of our Southern Baptist churches, what are some helpful things we need to think about when we're trying to instill? This is We're not really just talking about a program here. We're talking about a culture yeah, at, at a core level. And, and what, are, what are some things we need to do to help that culture? Yeah, that's exactly right. If, if the first thing you do is just make an announcement that we're going to start doing you know, whatever it is, fill in the blank to make disciples, it's probably not going to be really what you're looking for because it's not a part of the culture. Yeah. The best way that I think you can begin to, to turn that ship and to make it part of just the, the environment of your church is to just begin doing it yourself. Mm-hmm. If you're not currently discipling anyone, that's where you need to start. And you don't even have to tell folks you're doing it. <laughs> just start. Just find somebody uh, whether it's one person or two or three, whatever you got, start with that. Now you're looking for fat people for this, right? That's right. That's you're not exactly looking right. for. I personally don't really trust skinny people. <laughs> I only trust fat people. Fat, and what do you right. mean by that when you say fat? Faithful, available, and teachable. Yeah. So uh, it doesn't really have anything to do with their appearance. <laughs> oh. Um, but <laughs> you want somebody that that you see evidence of God's work in their lives. You want somebody that you think has potential to really grow in this area and maybe become a leader in the church, somebody that that, um, is going to be worth your investment. Um, Not that we're trying to be judgmental and say, well, this person's worth my time and they're not, but, but you want to, you want to invest wisely and think about what the overall goal is for this. Why are you doing this? What's the goal for your church? What's the goal for your ministry? And, if you can focus on discipling one or two or three men at a time and train them to then turn around and do the same thing with others, the, the impact of that will multiply over time and you'll see, you'll see great reward for that. That may not go as, as immediately noticed as, you know, popular preaching does, but it's important and valuable over time because that's again what Jesus did. Most likely you'll have the longer, uh, how would I say this? 
I would say in my ministry, my, my biggest joys have come from discipleship investments. Yeah. Even though I love preaching, I love it. Don't hear me say that, you know, for those that are listening. Let's talk a little bit more on the hows of doing this. So there's obviously, this can be highly structured. You could have like, okay, we're going to meet for two years and here is a covenant agreement on what we're going to do with our time. I want you to commit to this covenant agreement. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it can be kind of more organic. Uh, I would say one other thing I would add to your list of things for fat people is, <laughs> do I have good chemistry with this person or not? Yeah. Because there are sometimes you may have people that meet those three qualifications, but your personality is very different. You know, yeah. I, I tell people in church, uh, I can't remember who came up with it, but there are four types of people, finders, binders, minders, and grinders. And, uh, you know, the finders are kind of like, you know, they gotta they want the new thing. They got to have it. The binders bring all, all of it together. You know, it's just like it sounds like so in a, a political campaign, your finder is the politician. The campaign manager is the binder. And the minders just want to sweep off the rug and turn the lights on. They're just happy to do that. So finders and minders don't get along well. You know what I mean? So there's not good chemistry. Yeah. So you want to make sure that you click a little bit with that person, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And that doesn't mean that, uh, again, you don't just want to automatically say, no, this person's not worth my time and my investment. But maybe there's somebody else that's better suited. So, again, the more this becomes kind of an organic culture in your church, the more people who are ready to disciple others, the more disciplers there will be who can maybe fill the gap with that person that you're not as good of a fit for. And, and, and there is an element where I think there are different seasons of life that I've had conversations with men who have been willing and wanting to disciple. And as we've talked and as we started to try to, try to meet Realize that have to have a conversation. Hey, you know, this may not be the right season of life. Let's let's punt the ball and let's think about a year from now because right now you've got this going on, this going on that we need to address before we we're really taking time to really work through you know scripture and, and to really pour in and disciple you. Now, are you pursuing these individuals, or are you wait sitting back and waiting on them to come to you? I, I'm always trying to identify individuals. Now, sometimes the Lord will just bring somebody to you. You know, somebody that, fan, I feel like. yeah, somebody that shows just a, a, a unique curiosity or a willingness to, to learn or to, to grow in that way. But yeah, I'm always trying to be on the lookout for, for men that I think are potential leaders who I can spend some time with and invest in them and, and then trust them to carry that on, you know, 2 Timothy 2-2 two, two kind of thing. So you talked about, you know, how structured it needs to be if you want to do a commitment up front or anything like that. I've tried that in the past. I don't always do that. I think there does need to be some, some clear expectation up front, though, in terms of here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's, here's the goal. So one of the things that I always try to communicate right up front is I'm, I'm happy to invest this time with you. I'm really looking forward to it, but I want you to understand this is not just about you yeah. or me. This is with the goal in mind that you will then turn around and replicate this with someone else. So that and you, and you got to set that up front, right? Yeah. You have to set this expectation like day one, yeah. ground well, four. I mean, Jesus did that day one. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Matthew four. You know, yeah. Uh, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I mean, from the get go, the, the initial call to him. 
was also a call to replicate. That's yeah. right. And so one of the things that, that I try to do is say, I want you to already be thinking about folks in your life and your sphere of influence who, who maybe aren't even believers yet. Who can you go and, and share the gospel with them and lead them to Christ and then teach them and train them? Who are others, you know, who maybe already are Christians, but they could benefit from some intentional investment here. So, so all along, you want to keep that in mind and help them see that, you know, you know, six months, a year, two years from now, however long this process lasts, the end goal is not just for you to have a better Bible like you. Yeah. That's, that's not what we're after. We're trying to help you be more like Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that inevitably means you will reach out toward others. All right, Chris, let me ask a question from those who are listening, because I know there are people like this. I'm a pastor of a church, a small church here in the mountains of Appalachia, and I've come here, and me and my family are the only young family here. Most of the church is predominantly senior adults, so they're uh, probably the medium age of my church is 65 or older. I've got a lot of hospital visits I have to make. I have a lot of pressures because I'm probably bivocational. Uh, I don't see anybody in my church that is like 10 years younger than me. Uh, do I have the responsibility to try to disciple people who are 30, 40 years older than me, uh, who in their opinion have a lot more life experience, but you know, you see some areas where maybe they need to grow. What, what do I do in a situation like that where I'm trying to create this culture? Well, do you have a responsibility to disciple them? Yes. If you're their pastor, yes. <laughs> now what that looks like may, may change. You know, it's not a one size fits all sort of thing, but I would still say that even in that situation where you are, you're busy and you've got all these expectations and, and requirements that take your time and energy, there need to be some, some men that you take alongside you as you go, as you do those things. And some of those men may already be identified. Yeah. So for instance, um, I, I'm just thinking personally, um, one of the first groups of men I remember ever discipling were, were deacons. Uh, they were all 20, probably 20, 30 years older than me. And we were up front, same expectations. Here's what we want to do. And, and, and they were on board. They were excited because quite frankly, even as deacons, no one ever took time to invest in them on a weekly basis and spend time in the word and to be held accountable and memorize scripture together and, and to, you know, seek to live the, the Christ life. Uh, and so there was an element of excitement on their part, even though they were, most people considered them, you know, kind of the leaders in the church. But, but I think that was just an easy group from the get-go that were already been kind of selected out. And then I also knew moving forward, as our church meant to be intentional, these were men that were already identified, that we had walked through a process, so to say, of discipleship that we encourage them to replicate and that they already knew kind of what we had done and if they could do that in the life of another individual. That's good. Yeah, and I think he, Jacob makes an important point there, and that is that a lot of us never really had the benefit of somebody discipling us in this way. Not just deacons or lay leaders in your church, but a lot of us pastors never really had anybody that did that. So it's kind of hard doing something that you, you never experienced on, on that end of it. Um, but you know, as you are, as you are preparing to teach or preach, bringing a couple others into that process and use that as the avenue through which you, you lead them through scripture and you help them understand how to read and how to interpret as you're 
make it a hospital visit, bring somebody else along with you and use the time in the car to talk through their, their relationship with the Lord and how things are going in their life and then model for them that sort of ministry there in, in that moment. So I think there are ways that you can be intentional to do this and to make disciples without necessarily adding something else to your schedule. So and always a, trying really to take good, somebody along with you. Yeah. Just just that basic principle. Yeah, and I think it's healthy because I mean think of I mean think of even the way Jesus oftentimes we don't think of these things as elements of discipleship, but think of when Jesus feeds the, the five thousand, right? They hand him the bread, right? He prays over it and he hands them he hands it back to the disciples for them to distribute and do the work of ministry. Jesus himself didn't he, he performed the miracle, but they were the ones who were carrying out the and so I think there's an element of equipping the saints that that involves. Yeah, I was just going to say there's a really helpful book. Uh, and the title of the book is With. So you want to be with people to disciple them. George Robinson and Alvin Reed were the ones that wrote this book. And uh, it, George shares a lot of his personal testimony. He was led to the Lord by a, a, a man who the very next day took him to go <laughs> tell somebody else about what had happened to him and just kind of took him under his wing and invested in him personally. So that's his heart is to, to say, you can't just, you can't just um, think of, of disciple making as, as an hour where you sit together once a week. It's gotta be something that is more of a, a personal investment. You're weaving your life into the life of the person you're discipling. Is that that's what right. you're saying? Yeah. To where, you know, they're not just, oh, here's a notch on the belt, somebody I saved. They are part of, of God's family and really your family, right? I mean, that's the way yeah. the church is described. That's right. That's exactly right. And it could be formal and informal or organic. So, for instance, if, if we're walking through Scripture and we're talking about prayer, I mean, one of the, one of the things that I'm going to challenge them is I'm going to encourage them to, to, to memorize Scripture that goes along with prayer because I think that is is, is helpful is helpful and intentional. But I mean, we're gonna we're gonna practice praying, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'm gonna, we're gonna talk about that and how how God is working even in their prayer life. You're, you don't just sit here and teach the truth and and just let it lie. You take the time to apply it, and I think that's the key aspect. All right. One other question here about starting this in ministry in your church. Let's say I have identified some fat people in my church, <laughs> which is not real hard at Grace Baptist Church, but we, because I have so many teachable people. Don't, don't read that wrong. All right. You've identified some fat people in your church and they've agreed they want to do this. You've talked to them about it and they want to be disciple making disciples. Where do you start? Do you ask them, Hey, what do you want to look at together? Where is an area you'd like to grow in? Or do you have something planned out? Have you predetermined where they need to grow based on what you've observed in their lives? I think it can differ a little bit depending on who those people are and where they are in their walk with the Lord. Typically, I like to take folks through a a process that will just sort of, um, I guess, increase their, their efforts in spiritual disciplines. So we focus on reading the Bible together and and discussing it together regularly, praying with and for one another, holding each other accountable, whether that's in evangelism efforts or just in, you know, struggling in, in one area or another in our lives. So I, I think that's where we want to we want to stick to the basics, so to speak. Yeah, yeah I think it's different because if it's a new believer, one of the things I'm probably going to start with is as I'm going to look at some of the early commands of Christ 
and then I'm going to start looking into some spiritual disciplines, and then you know th- those are more. And then I want to get up. You know, we read. I think I mentioned this earlier. You know, where it talks about where Jesus talks about being the way, the truth, and the life. And so, one of the things I like to focus on is, is is the way. So, if it's a new believer, you know, how do what how do they come to faith, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, talk about your your testimony. Let's talk about what happened and and what took place in the work of the Spirit. And so, we're talking about how that came about. And then we're talking about um, you know the life. So, we're talking about basic things of, of how to grow as a believer: being in the Word, being in prayer, right? Serving stuff like that. And then we're talking about the truth. So, so there's going to be some some basic, I think, doctrines or things that I want to teach, right? Um, you know, I want to talk about what is sin. I want to talk about um, who, who God is and, and, and Jesus' nature, right? There's some basic truths I think you, you've got to Transubstantiation. <laughs> I want to talk about... Uh, but, but, I want to talk about superlapsarianism. I want to talk yeah. about... And, and so, but, but I think there is... You know, I think there is, and this is where I think people are going to differ to some degree when it comes to discipleship, is you don't want to be so process-oriented that you're trying to churn out, you know, kind of copied disciples. But at the same time, there has got to be some order or process because, I mean, you think of the way Scripture is, is ordered is, um, it's evident Jesus is teaching his disciples certain truths, and there's certain things Paul is commanding us, and there's certain things Christ is commanding us, and John and, and many people through Scripture are commanding us. So those are obviously equal and worthy truths to be teaching, you know. Um, and so there's got to be some process, but but a, but a fluidity of process given individuals or a, or a discipleship group you're working with at a time. I'm going to make this statement. In revitalization, I personally do not believe it is possible to truly revitalize a church without building disciples. You believe that's a true statement? I do. I don't think it's possible to have any sort of healthy church apart from disciple making. Not building programs, not building buildings, not building, but building individuals up in Christ. Yeah, I mean, it's been recognized by many that, you know, the command Christ gave us was not go and plant churches, (laughs) but go and make disciples. It's, it's, not easy, but it's possible in our day and age to plant a church that has activities and programs and a building without really making disciples. Yeah. Ouch. But you can't make disciples and not end up with a church yeah. because true disciples who are being obedient to Jesus will gather and will will be a church. So and as I think we're that's aligning the heart of it. As we're aligning those things and we're about sorry to cut you off there, as we're aligning these things you know, we have to ask that question. I think you said, how does this help us yeah. make disciples or not? And what did you say? If it doesn't, then what? Then why do it? It's, it's a distraction from the, what the mission is really supposed to be. There are a lot of good things that we can be doing. But as you know, the, the good is often the enemy of, of best. best yeah. And we don't want to sacrifice the mission that Christ gave us because we're too busy doing good things that people enjoy. Yeah. So I think that's a real challenge, especially in an established church where there are traditions and programs and everything else that people are very attached to. I would, I would at least say you need to find a way to leverage those existing structures toward disciple making. Don't just go in and blow it all up, yeah. but, but find a way that you can, can tweak or change or leverage what's already there to make it more effective for disciple making. That may be a whole other podcast. You're going to have to come back and explain how to do that. <laughs> but, uh, but it's true, though. I, I think there is, I mean, in Baptist life, and especially revitalization, there's a lot of events or good things or fun things that happen. 
but I think what, what Chris is saying is key is is trying to figure out um, how you can leverage that for for the kingdom. So is this going to be an area of, of growth in Christ, or are we going to leverage this for living on mission for Christ? Right. So so how are we going to leverage this for how we faithfully make disciples? Excellent. All right, we got to land the plane because we're out of time. Uh, but I'd like to come back and have you back because we really didn't get into, now that we've sort of established that, how do we hand the ball off to those that are being decided? So we, we may do a whole other episode just on how to do that. And uh, it's a very simple formula, but one that I think we need to discuss. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And uh, thank you, brother, as always, for being with us. Uh, before I go, though, I got what I'm going to call twinkling of the eye around with you. Chris, you ready for this? I want to ask you three quick questions. Don't hesitate because we don't have a lot of time. Just answer them quickly. Right? You ready? Uh, who are some preachers that have been very influential in your life? Oh, man, too many to mention. Uh, I would say uh, John Piper, David Platt, Alistair Begg. One I really have always enjoyed is Chip Ingram. I really like listening to Chip Ingram. I think he's very practical. And calming. His voice is so calming. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, like yeah, he's so. petting a bird when he talks to me <laughs> just call me he might be I've never seen him do that <laughs> yeah it's possible I guess uh, if um, if you could preach anywhere in the any pulpit in the world what pulpit would you preach in I've never even considered that I have no idea. I'm just thankful to be able to do it anywhere so we're going to say <laughs> so, Oak Street yeah Oak Street that's right. All right and if if you could do one thing for the Lord and you knew it would not fail God had given you that guarantee, what would it be? I think it would just be to try to make disciples, really. I mean, that's the that's the that's the commission, right? And so again, we can get distracted by a lot of other ideas or dreams, but that's what's really going to be best for us and for the kingdom. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Appalachian Baptist Network. Thanks for joining us. If you have a question or comment for our host, please send an email to Network at gmail.com or send us a voice message on our Anchor website page at anchor.fm slash Appalachian dash Baptist dash network. Join us again next Monday.